0: Do you want a bank that has reliable bank feeds? Do you want a bank that has ultra detailed transaction data to make reconciliation lightning fast? Do you want a bank that connects to both QuickBooks Online and Zero directly? Do you want a bank that offers you access to your client's bank accounts using your own login? Do you want a bank that has no account fees, overdraft fees, or minimum balances? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor Relay later in the episode.
1: I mean this is ridiculous, right? Like the IRS got 80 billion dollars and now they're saying we're not going to be able to upgrade this thing for another 7 years at the end it's unlikely they'll actually make it. I wouldn't try to fix the IRS anymore. Like the IRS as it is, I think it's kind of like too too much technical debt to use the tech word to save it. I mean, this system is just too old. You can't upgrade it. You have to rip out and put in new. But the problem is, how do you do that? You can't just stop the IRS for a while.
0: Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio,
1: this is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Blake, we just spent the last two days together. And now, yeah, we did. Yeah, we were at the CPA Educators Conference, which was very convenient. It was in Tempe. So, uh, right near me, only 30 minutes from me, a couple hours from you. What did you think? Well,
0: for us, like if we think about our journey here, right, we fell into CPE education backwards, right, (laughs) because of the Cloud Accounting Podcast. And so, everything I feel like I'm just learning from people that have been doing CPE education for years. And it's a mix of like vendors and companies that offer CPE, like Earmark, and then there's the state societies, and it's the people in charge of creating the CPE content or offering mm-hmm. CPE to their their state members. And I, I, my biggest takeaway, and this is like like going back to like Accounting 101, and like there's these standards boards like FASB and like and well we have NASBA, and you talk there's some states that don't actually use NASBA, they don't participate. And I didn't know. I, I didn't know there was a, a fractioning. I had no clue that this went on. I thought it was like, well, they're the national. Like everybody uses that one. And I, I was like Louisiana, for example, they have to prove all their. See, they don't use the NASBA standards, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. So that was like a big
1: learning, is just the that how e- how even though we have NASBA, so much of CPE is still fractured, and it's different in every state is what you're saying. Yeah. And, and, and they,
0: and they all have their own reasons why they don't want to participate or use them. Uh, And it's, I, I didn't, I just didn't know it was like that. That was like my big learning. And I think the second big learning for me was the, uh, the opening keynote Hayden was the last name Williams. He's the CEO or president of the Washington state society. And he does the opening keynote and, Put incidentally, he actually was at ASU and got kicked out. He like failed out of school the first time. But he goes on to say how he basically had 12 years of school to get his degree, right? Had a horrible GPA, but he never actually finished the rest of the story. Which, um, the way I heard it was, and nobody cares because you took the CPA exam and you have those three letters. Nobody cares right. that you had a crappy GPA. Nobody cares that it took you 12 years of school. And yeah, you went that's to the three or four different campuses. Like, yeah. the only you got the letters. And you could right. so you could you could have crappy education, whatever, an average education, below average, crappy grades, and you still can be the president of your state society of CPAs because you have those three letters. And it goes yeah. to I I my per, I was like that just reinforces the point.
1: Like you just want the you just need the letters. The yeah, exam basically. Yeah. So for me, uh, I was a little confused about this conference because it was called the CPA Educators Conference, and I thought we were going to go there and meet educators. And there were some, some CPE creators, some instructors there. Yep. But I would say 95% of the room was people from state societies who in char- are in charge of CP for their members. And then vendors like Surgent and ACPEN and uh, these other companies that work with instructors to create CP. But there were actually very few instructors there. And there were very few CPAs even in the room. I was one of the few CPAs yeah. because a lot of these people are like professional educators. And they're lovely people and everything like that. But I just think it's strange um, that, you know, like the CPA, the profession has gotten like so far away from teaching itself, right? We have professional educators. We have all these people that create CPE but aren't practitioners. And I think, you know, one of the things that we want to do at Earmark and that we're working to do, and I do on the Earmark podcast, is actually bring in real practitioners to teach because they're actually doing the work, right? And they know what people need to know. And unfortunately, a lot of times you get these educators who haven't done the work in like ten, twenty years or longer, and they're telling us what we need to do so like that's that's a problem that I see, especially in higher education, where you've got people who the last time they ever did a reconciliation was twenty years ago or more, and here they are teaching accounting, and they're still teaching it the old way so I do feel like they were all there
0: though there's a lot of discussions on how to deliver. CPE in different ways going forward in the future. Because yeah. they, they all they all will admit when you're talking to them, they're all having declining memberships in general. People are not the age of the people doing different types of CPE is I think the lowest was like webinars. The average age is forty-eight. But all the other like in-person, seminars, all these other ones are all above the age of fifty, the average age. Mm-hmm. And they they know they're not getting anybody under the age of like forty getting CPA oh, yeah. through their programs. Yeah. And it's a it's a dilemma for them, but the, the way they kind of presented it, and I think this was um, CPA Crossings, their, C, their new CEO, and I think they got purchased by Pennsylvania State Society, right? CPA Crossings did, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And he was kind of talking about, you have to start breaking your content. And long story short, it's almost like, a, in my opinion, it's like a Netflix model, right? It's convenient, there's high quality, and it's cheap. And then I step back, I'm like, that's what we're doing with earmark, Mark. So it's kind of good. Yeah. Like, like oh, yeah. we're, so so we're, we're kind of helping to lead that, conver- that conversation a little bit. We don't have all the answers, though. I mean, no. they're, all, they're, they're, they're trying to reinvent themselves, all these state societies, and what offerings
1: and how they're going to do it. Well, and every time I ended up talking to somebody at the society, I said, okay, how's your membership trending? Is it going up? Is it going down? And most of the time it's going down, or they would say it was plateaued. And then I asked, well, does your leadership have any plans or any strategy for fixing this, for increasing your membership or making sure it doesn't fall off a cliff when 75% of CPAs retire in 10 years? And the answer was no. They weren't aware of it anyway, which makes me think there isn't a plan, right? Which is the really concerning thing for me as a CPA. Uh, they all, the most, the vibe I got to was 150 hours
0: has to go. I was getting that vibe from a lot of people, including... Uh, the opening keynote, the president of Washington.
1: Yeah. Uh, so. Taylor is in the chat and said, I know when I go to different conferences for accounting professionals, I'm the youngest by far in the room. Yeah. And you know I'm almost 40, and I feel like a lot of times I'm the youngest in the room. So,
0: Well, the two accountants
1: that came to do the talk to rep- to present
0: how younger people are feeling about the profession, right? And yeah. how they like to learn and things like that. By the time they were doing their talk, I went to go try to talk to them. They already bailed. They had to go back to work. They were gone. <laughs> they yeah, came in, did their presentation for an hour, and they bounced out. I was like, I didn't even get the chance to, to talk to them. They are gone. Yeah. Because they, they were weren't working even, in the profession.
1: They're they are accountants. And they were brought in to talk about what young professionals want. But yeah. they themselves were like already 10, 15 years into the profession. <laughs> yes, so yeah. like the people that actually need to be there talking about what young accountants want aren't there. They're all working you know, 60 to 80 hours. That's the problem, right? But I want to get off of this topic yes, because yes. we did we got some feedback from a listener that they're sick of us talking about the 150-hour rule. I don't know if you saw that email, David, uh, but one of our listeners said, uh, it's something like, Jesus, you guys need to stop talking about the 150-hour rule. I'm sick of it. But we uh, cover so the we, news and everybody's talking about it. How could we not I, talk about it? How could, could we not, right? About it? But uh, in accounting today, just did a whole series about it this week. Uh, <laughs> they had like three, four articles that came out like today and yesterday, so... Going concerns,
0: um, publishing people's tweet threads. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's not oh, going it's, away. So
1: so unfortunately, I can't promise you that we won't talk about it on this episode because we got an interview with the executive director of the State Board of Accountancy in Arkansas, Jimmy Corley. He came on our program. Uh, we did the interview earlier this week. I put it on LinkedIn and I'm going to play the clip of it for you on this show, but I'm going to wait to do it so I don't uh, annoy the folks who are tired of the 150-hour rule. But it's uh, not I, us talking about
0: it. This is like a real person. And just to clarify, is Jimmy the director of the society
1: or director of the state board? board, board the yeah. state board. Executive director of the state board. State board. Um, yeah, so uh, it's great. He, he talks about his opinions on the 150-hour requirement, how we can attract more people into the profession. Uh, it gave me a lot of hope, actually, that there's guys like Jimmy running state boards. So we'll talk about that. Hey, JG Tax Pro in the chat. Thanks for joining us. He says I've often said that the only value proposition the CPA title has is brand recognition. I have a Mac and my undergrad was in nuclear engineering technology. I still struggle to find time to study. Yeah. The brand recognition is what is the value for most CPAs? Eighty-five percent of CPAs don't actually need their CPA to do what they do. It's only the fifteen percent of auditors who need it. So the rest of us we're we're getting it and we're keeping it for the brand. And so that's what I'm really concerned about: is how do we keep the brand relevant?
0: Especially but all those like I, investment guys and insurance sales guys that are yeah. they're still CPAs, but they don't do any accounting work whatsoever. But they they keep yeah. that brand because it helps them sell more insurance and it helps them.
1: Yeah. I know. Well, you know, and and I need to be putting CPA after the end of my name on this uh, stream that we're doing here if I'm going to really represent. Anyway, let's talk about the news, David, because yeah. there has been a lot of news in the accounting profession. And the big story of the week I think has got to be that China is telling firms that do work with the state or are state-owned to drop their big four auditors. And the reason they're doing this, they say, is because they are concerned that the big four accounting firms may be sharing data from these Chinese firms with American and European governments. Because if anybody would be an expert in those behaviors, it would be China. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. But I mean, hey, it's not hard to believe that this could be happening. But th- th- this actually goes back to, uh, I don't know if you remember the beef that the PCAOB. And the sec were having with chinese firms and 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 getting access to audit papers yes, uh, yes, yes, yes yeah chinese companies weren't giving access to the regulators to investigate the audit papers to make sure these audits are being done right PCOB And they were threatening to like delist them right because of exactly this. threatening to delist and then uh there was a story, I think this happened like this past summer or something, where the PCAOB won. They were victorious. The Chinese firms said, we're going to give you access. The, the, the audit yeah, papers were opened now. up. I remember. They went okay. over there. And so it seemed like a victory. But really, I think what happened is the government said, we're going to get back at them, right? And so now this is the way they're going to do it. Uh, they're, they're basically going to take away this business from the big four and... That way, there's no you know, regulation. That's, the, the access isn't going to happen. Uh, more and more firms are going to get de, delisted. And it's like a multi-billion dollar thing for these firms. Let me find the number here. Yeah, it is the big four earned a combined revenue of 20.6 billion yuan. That's 3 billion US dollars from all Chinese clients in 2021, according to the finance ministry in China. So uh, this, is, this is like another example, or it's an example in the accounting profession of how the US and China are growing further and further apart. And you know, the same way that we have almost two different internets and we have different companies providing social media access. And uh, th- this, is, this is gonna be a big deal if this ends up happening in the business world. Because think about it, if you're an investor in the US, are you gonna trust audits that weren't done? By big four auditors that were done by Chinese audit firms, right? That are not that are not global, um, and that might you know feel pressure even more pressure than the firms feel now to deliver the audit results that these companies want. I, th- I think for me the takeaway here is like that's just going to free up capacity
0: like for for the firms there's that many accountants don't have now enough. that can do other work right they yeah. should they should give a lot of uh, free capacity but i think just going back to china i heard uh, another podcast this week the question was kind of posed like if china has all this ai and they're so far ahead of us why didn't they invent chatgpt and they're saying like ultimately it's because to build something like that you have to have access to data that's freely available and the internet mm-hmm. and the data is so suppressed there that that's why it wasn't built, so you're right like the this feels like a political move too i'm I'm surprised no Congress people penned a letter about this banning of these uh, the big four like yeah. where's Congress hammering the uh, the hammer on this right now
1: uh so what was top of mind for you this week, David, because I actually have a chat g p t thing we could do right now if you want uh,
0: man there's been I don't know there's been so much I'm trying to digest what's next next um into other earnings. Which is there's you know all the all the good stuffs in the conference call, mm-hmm. um, the big thing I think from the Intuit earnings was that desktop ecosystem revenue grew by oh grew by ten percent year over year uh, to five hundred six million dollars. But it's I think it's deceiving because they raised the prices up and basically they have everybody on a subscription now for desktop.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: even if desktop declined the total users, which they don't report that. The revenue still could have grown ten percent, so it's a little deceiving because I think you know the the team desktop people are like, look at this, it keeps growing, but I don't think it may not actually be growing. This is just the revenue that grew. Um, and then in the conference call, there was a couple interesting phrasings that was used. And let's see here. Yeah, so they definitely uh, talked about the opportunity for B two B payments in the U S. and they're bringing bill pay functionality to QuickBooks. So they're basically it's both sides. There's the the invoice network, right, for mailing invoices around between businesses and sending them from QuickBooks to so QuickBooks, mm-hmm. and now they're going to add on the bill pay because they really want to attack that 75% of all business transactions are still paper checks. So they want to go after that paper check market and then bring that and digitize that. But then I didn't know they did this. So they integrated MailChimp into QuickBooks Online already. So essentially, really? how, how so? How um, does that work? It, and then verbiage is interesting. So this is to quote, uh, now turning to MailChimp, we're well on our way to becoming the source of truth for our customers to help them grow and run their business. And it's funny how, because that sentence used to be kind of the sentence for QuickBooks. And now it's being in this context of MailChimp, but it's because it's tied together. So essentially they've launched a real-time data sync that brings QBO data such as invoices, sales receipts, items, customers, and addresses into the email channel now. So you could you could create an email and be like anybody who ever bought this item, send them that email, essentially. So they're, yeah. they're they're really tying that in together. And then the other one that, that was interesting, they kind of got into like some of the macro of uh, businesses in general. Mm-hmm. But one of the things he said it twice. Hassan said it. Um, one of their goals they wanted the success rate of small businesses on our platform. So it would be you know. QuickBooks and Mailchimp, the Intuit stack, to be ten points better than the industry, and apparently it's more the result results been more than fifteen points better than anybody in the industry. But nobody really got into like what does that mean? Does that mean like if small businesses ten percent more are more successful on or fifteen percent more are more successful if they use QuickBooks products? Nobody got into what that real number is. But the, he said it again deeper in the, in the thing. So I don't know what what that means. Like if I am a business and I use Intuit products. I'm going to be more successful, and it's better than everybody else. Fifteen percent better than the rest of the industry, like other products. Mm -hmm. Nobody asked, so it's not a a very clear line on that. And what's the last one little thing? Oh, they they think they're going to still see the subscription flip for QuickBooks Desktop run for another one and a half years. Like it should just the revenue should keep growing as they keep flipping people to this subscription model on that and. Oh, they're seeing lots and lots of people return to use TurboTax Live last year, returning again to use it again, of course. They have 100 million consumers in the platform, and so they can see people's credit scores and credit card balances now. And people's credit scores are down about 13 points, and credit card balances are up 20%. And the, wow. the yeah. big impact on this, it's the people that are like the 600 to 660 credit, credit score range are running with like yeah. 9,000 credit card debt right now. So from an now,
1: economic perspective, that's a little scary. right? Well, actually, I would say that's good news. Uh, from an economic macro perspective, it's not good for the people who have the debt. Like credit <laughs> card debt is terrible. <laughs> but from a macro perspective, we need people to rack up the credit card debt so that they rein in their spending, right? If If they have the credit card debt available, they'll use it. And that's, that's what's true. driving up inflation, right? So we actually want people to like max out they you know, if they well, what we really want is for them to control themselves and not spend what they don't have. But if they're going to be an American consumer, which they are, then they're going to spend what they don't have, and so uh, we need them to hit that limit so that they stop, and that prices can moderate. Right, even if they don't come down, we we you know that's consumer spending is what's driving inflation. Right. So, um, David, you brought up those are great insights from the from the earnings report. Thanks, David. You you brought up ChatGPT, so I wanted to do a uh, an example of ChatGPT in an accounting firm. So this is
0: This episode of the Cloud Accounting podcast is sponsored by Relay. Between Blake and myself, we now have 3 4 or maybe 5 business entities, 20 or so checking accounts and dozens and dozens of virtual cards. It would be impossible to manage all of this if we weren't using Relay as our small business bank. Relay is truly a part of the tech stack we use to run our businesses. Relay allows Blake and I to each have our own logins, we can grant access to our team, and even our accountant without sharing passwords or two-factor authentication codes. Relay allows us to grow and scale our banking needs without ever going into a physical branch. I recently added an account to receive inbound merchant services with just a few clicks and I had to create a payroll checking account. Again, just a few clicks, and I instantly had access to my ACH info to give to my payroll provider. With Relay's virtual cards, we can issue debit cards to our team around the world for needed business expenses. I can instantly spin up a new Visa debit card and set both daily and monthly spending limits. And when a team member doesn't need their card, I can freeze it until they need to use it again. To learn more about using Relay in your firm and with your clients, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash relay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-L-A-Y.
1: This is um, from Paul Medina. He just tweeted this today. He said, daughter of client emails, quote, I owe $700 on TurboTax. How is this possible? I haven't done this daughter's return in five years. How would you answer? Both polite and humorous answers welcome, but would like at least one polite answer and i thought hey this is perfect for ChatGPT to answer right like it's good at writing strange uh emails it's good at, at well especially know, since she is not a client yeah <laughs>
0: she's a non-playing client so you don't want to actually invest in the real an uh, answer exactly so. you don't
1: want to invest time in responding right okay. so i asked ChatGPT. i said I, I put in exactly that tweet and i and i put it into ChatGPT. so here's the polite response dear client's daughter Thank you for reaching out about the $700 owed on your TurboTax account. As I haven't had the opportunity to review your tax returns for the past five years, it's difficult for me to say why this amount is owed. I recommend reviewing your tax returns and payments from previous years to determine if there are any outstanding balances or penalties that may have contributed to the current amount owed. If you'd like, I'm happy to assist you in reviewing your previous tax returns to help identify any issues that may need to be addressed. Please let me know if you have any further questions or concerns. That's a dangerous sentence to put in. Uh, Humorous response. I'm sorry to hear that you owe $700 on your TurboTax account. My initial guess is that perhaps you've been spending too much on avocado toast. But I could be wrong. In all seriousness, without reviewing your tax returns for the past five years, it's difficult to say why this amount is owed. I suggest taking a closer look at your tax returns and payments from previous years to determine if there are any outstanding balances or penalties that may have contributed to the current amount owed. If you'd like, I'm happy to assist you in reviewing your previous tax returns to help identify any issues that may need to be addressed. Let me know if you need any help spreading the word about the dangers of avocado toast addiction. So there you have it. It's a great usage. Of uh, ChatGPT,
0: but if you step back and like like think about that answer (laughs) that was given in both of those, right? It's very like, oh, you owed like it's this like weird gray non-answer, like, well, you probably owed and you didn't make enough payments. When really the answer is probably like, oh, go look at your pay stubs. You probably didn't have enough federal withholding taken out. Like, it's not the answer, right? It's just it's so wishy-washy, and I think that's the problem. I think with the, with this, it's it doesn't it's not a real
1: answer. Um, yeah, but, but the it, you framing have to send it, an if email you go and
0: change the one or two sentences. The letter's letter yeah, for good.
1: You. Yeah, it's pretty good, right? I mean, it gives you the it gives you something. Yeah. Uh, thank you, John, Alistair, Joseph, Julie, for joining us. Joseph said, "Chat GPT is so cool. I'm going to use it for email responses. LOL. It's something you can totally do. I've been testing out the Zapier integration with it." you have to go set up an open AI account and put a credit card on there and link it up. And it, you know, it takes like half an hour, an hour to do it, but you could actually like put emails into a folder and then ask chat GPT, like through the, through the Zapier integration, have it automatically draft responses to those emails. So if you've got a certain type of email inquiry, you get, and you want it to just like draft you something. All, that all you can emails edit. from Blake. Yeah. <laughs> get, have a reply to it. And
0: it'll just be, it'll, it'll be in context kind of.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So uh yeah, you know, ChatGPT for the win there. Um did you see the the ChatGPT for the loss that happened this week? What's that? So we
0: got this in from a listener uh Callie Maxson, M A X S O N. Apparently, um the P- Vanderbilt University, their staff, well there was a shooting, I don't know if you saw it, Michigan State oh, last yeah, yeah, week yeah. or whatever. Yeah. They used ChatGPT to write a sympathy letter. Mm-hmm. text to respond to the shooting. Um, and it basically, then they had to write a real email and apologize for doing that. Yeah, so, And again, well,
1: I think there's like, when should you use it? When should you not use it properly? I feel like actually that's a great use case for it is like, I wouldn't know what to say in that case. Like if, if one of my employees had like a death in the family, I'm going to sit there trying to figure out how to f- write something that's empathetic and, and nice you know, for a long time. And chat GPT could really help me. So I don't understand why everybody's so down on this. I guess it's because it feels impersonal that they well, do it also, that, like, but... you know, it went on to say, like, creating a safe and
0: inclusive environment for all, like, it, it, it kind of, I think, pushed some people's political slant buttons, possibly, as well, mm. right? It, it feels yeah. like, oh, is this AI weighted one way or the other? Now, maybe it's because it didn't say thoughts and prayers, which usually is what happens in these situations.
1: So, um, yeah. It's tax season, David. So, shall we talk about tax? Should we talk about the IRS? I think we mentioned that they gave up on their plan to modernize their ancient technology. Remember that they yes. they, they they had like a plan to get rid of the what is it called the master file system or to upgrade that thing, and I guess they just they they never got around to it. Well,
0: they, just, they had to shift resources to other parts of the IRS. They don't have time. Yeah. They, they they don't have the resources to work
1: on it. Yeah. Well. Washington Post wrote an opinion piece. The editorial board wrote a piece. The IRS should not be running on sixty-year-old technology. <laughs> I mean, I think we can all agree with that. They're really not going out on a limb too far there. But you know, they include some details that really everybody should know. And who, Last who was year, the, the author on that article? This is the editorial board of the Washington Post.
0: Oh, is so it the board itself? It's not even an individual per se.
1: Got it. Yeah, the, no, they're like you know, the editorial board. Like when the Wall Street Journal does an uh, editorial piece, right? Or the New York Times does it? Yeah. So that's what this is. Uh, So they mentioned, of course, that the IRS only answered 13% of phone calls last year. It has a paper backlog that includes millions of unprocessed returns. Um, And the thing that always gets me is, you know, when they dig into like, what is actually the technology issue that is happening here? And it's this individual master file that's been around since 1970, when Richard M. Nixon was president, and the Chevrolet Chevelle? was a hot car I don't even know if that's how you say it because I've never (laughs) I'm not a car guy Um, they are both long gone but the individual master file is still the main database to collect and store taxpayer information it was built with antiquated programming languages COBOL and assembly the IRS says it finally updated some code last year but COBOL remains in use and this is the big problem this is why the IRS can't put everything online because they've got this system that uses COBOL And I don't think there's an API for the individual master file. Well, you think there's an accountant
0: shortage. There's really a shortage of engineers that can write in COBOL.
1: (laughs) That's that's the real big shortage. So they pushed out the project now to 2030. But the GAO warns it's unlikely the IRS will meet that deadline. So, I mean, this is ridiculous, right? Like the IRS got $80 billion. And now they're saying we're not going to be able to upgrade this thing for another seven years at the end it's unlikely they'll actually make it. So what what I think that they might want to do is do what FreshBooks did. It's like if if, if I had I'm going to yeah. put on my hat, right? If I was in charge of the 80 billion dollars, which I would gladly do, uh, I would I wouldn't try to fix the IRS anymore. Like the IRS as it is, um, I think it's kind of like too too much technical debt to use the tech word to save it. I mean, this system is just too old. You can't upgrade it. You have to rip out and put in new. But the problem is, how do you do that? You can't just stop the IRS for a while. So, what if we did what FreshBooks did? Um, and I love telling this story about FreshBooks. I think I've told it to you, David, uh, on, and the said show it on the podcast before. a week ago yeah. or
0: two weeks ago. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, th- what they did is um, instead of uh, th- they were trying to modernize the product, which had been around for 20 years, and they were having trouble doing it. And so, what the CEO did. I think it's Mike McDermott did is he started a new company in secret and he took some of his best people and he put them into this new startup and he gave them the mission of building FreshBooks 2.0, but under a different name. So the idea is it would, you know, have all the same features as FreshBooks, but with brand new tech, brand new backend, all that stuff from scratch, the way it should have been built if it was built today, but call it something else, build it. They basically created their own competitor. And then once they'd gotten it to the point And it had customers too, right? And once they got it to the point where it could stand alone, they ported over people from FreshBooks 1 to FreshBooks 2. And why couldn't the IRS do this? Uh, You could start with like the simplest taxpayers and let them opt in to a new form of the IRS, call it new IRS or new RS or IRS 2.0, and then gradually increase the complexity of the forms that this new group could handle and it could run in parallel, you know, to the IRS. And I know there's complexities to that, but I think that would be actually be the way to do it: is to actually not try to fix the current IRS, but to build a new one. But that, that's, that's let, not how governments work, though. Like,
0: this is gonna, this thing's <laughs> gonna get milked for 25 years, and <laughs> and they're gonna get the you know the Big Four advisors involved. They're gonna help in this project. The Big Four is gonna get mil- billions out of it. Uh, yeah, it's it's tricky.
1: Maybe ask ChatGPT how the IRS should solve the COBOL problem. That's what D. Hall said. All right, David, what's next? I
0: think kind of staying in this theme. So uh, there was an article, this was in the uh, Open Secrets News. Um, it's really uh, investigative journalism. But they had mm-hmm. an article about Intuit's uh, lobbying efforts and the money Intuit spent. And basically Intuit has now, uh, this in 2022, they spent $3.5 million on federal lobbying. And it's, it's, it's the most they've ever spent, so it's, so it's gotten the highest. But if their increase really only feels very inflationary. It doesn't feel like it's a big, huge jump. But they did claim that it was twice as much as what H&R Block spent. Yeah. But H&R Block's spending on lobbying is down from their high of 4 point... What was it? Their high of, in 2018 of 4.1 million. So they, they're all lobbying. And then the other piece of this article, which... I didn't know. So when they passed the um, the Inflation Reduction Act, do you know that there was fifteen million dollars set aside for the Treasury to give the IRS to create a free federal tax filing service? Yeah, but, like so, so. So that's also like fifteen million. Somebody's going to do a special project, research it. <laughs> it's a good contract if you could get that, get that one too. was um, yeah, well, something the, that probably will never roll out.
1: IRS should absolutely create a like an easy way for it should create its own free file for sure for like just simple w2s and all that why not i mean i mean
0: if, if no, i and to be honest like if i was into it and it's our block and the the AICPA everybody should be lobbying for them to try to go make this on their own because it, yeah, it's just no, like it, healthcare.gov like it's just going no. to be a complete
1: mess and it's just going to make everybody else seem more valuable yeah well i mean okay great yeah go build it but, yeah, go build it. And so then TurboTax and HR Block would have to do a better job than whatever the free government solution is. It's like, you know, I always feel like there, there really should be, you know, you have the free government option. So we Sort of like we have this with healthcare now, right? You have the free government option, yep. and you have the private options, right? And that way, there's always, like, a free option. Like, but the way the system's set up now is just so ridiculous. I mean, the only way to do it for free is to fill out the forms by hand and mail them in, right? Like, that's absurd. Which costs the IRS even more.
0: Yeah, probably. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Zoho. I'm sure you've heard of Zoho before. We've probably even mentioned Zoho CRM or Zoho Books on this podcast in the past. But do you really know about Zoho? Did you know that Zoho has been around for 26 years? Did you know that Zoho has 85 million users? Did you know that Zoho has over 50 applications? Did you know that Zoho offers one subscription to 50 applications? Did you know that Zoho apps are integrated with other Zoho apps? Did you know that almost all Zoho apps have Zapier connections? Did you know that some Zoho apps can connect directly to QuickBooks Online, Xero, and Sage Accounting? Did you know that Zoho offers an entire suite of solutions to run your firm, including a CRM, expense tracking, bookkeeping, a full office suite, a support ticket system, and workflow automation? Did you know that Zoho offers a suite of solutions for your clients' bookkeeping, including bookkeeping, inventory, invoicing, subscription management, and a checkout app? Did you know that Zoho has an accountant's program? Did you know that Zoho advisors get free access to eight Zoho applications and a dedicated account manager? If you want to learn more about becoming a Zoho advisor, head over to Zoho. That is Z O H O. Zoho, a one-stop solution for all business needs.
1: Uh, got a chat from a uh, comment from Nathan here. I actually went and looked at a job working for the IRS. As a CPA, you can start at around 55k a year and the certification is not taken into account. Yeah, they don't pay that great, do they? Although, 55K is not bad for a government job where you're probably not going to work more than, what, 35 hours a week. So <laughs> yeah, when you, you actually do. compare it to like what you make as an auditor working 60 hours a week, probably better <laughs> in that part. JG Tax Pro says, I was part of a 12-year SAP pilot when it was finally scrapped and we were forced to implement a government-made information system which is still being used and constantly upgraded. Heather wow. says, A beta version of the IRS would be awesome. Yes, let's build it let's build a private IRS right I always talk about this like Arizona we have like a semi privatized DMV David you've experienced this yeah. like yeah and so I like it works really well because you can be a private business and you can get a license from Arizona to link into the DMV systems and you can like process all this stuff on behalf of people like maybe that's what the future of accounting firms could be is actually like having a way to uh, be like semi-governmental even. Um, I don't know. Just a crazy idea. JG Tax Pro says they already have that. I think this is in, in regards to the free uh, tax prep program. It's called the VITA, Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program. The current contract holder is TaxSlayer for the tax software. I uh, got it. So, okay. So, they're just using, they don't have their own. They just have a contract with TaxSlayer. Trinity says Intuit or H&R Block should build it and sell it to the IRS. That's the only way it would ever happen. <laughs> yeah. What else, David? I don't want to touch on the accountant shortage too
0: much, but there's an article that caught my headline because it said, how CPA firms are engaging the next tax and accounting pros. And then I read the whole article, and it was, it was very slanted because the, the author, his name is Greg Sloan. He's a CFP, C-E-P-A, a C-P-M-T-M. He's the chief purpose officer and co founder of Go Beyond, a talent development company. So it looks like it's a you know, a people company per se. But mm-hmm. he, he calls out in this article the big four. And all of them have these like big purpose statements that, you know, he kind of he references in here. And not only that, um, so Deloitte, they have their purpose. Our purpose is to make impact that matters by creating trust and confidence in a more equitable society. And they in March of twenty twenty one, they named their they' are first of our chief purpose officer but all of them all pwc ey kpmg they all have like these big purpose statements and i think they're trying to use that because you've said this like younger people want to have a sense of purpose yeah at these companies but like this, having the statement i don't know if that makes well, is well, you that the just marketing have the is that the marketing of this yeah or yeah, yeah i say that.
1: That's a lot of marketing money, and if you just have a purpose statement, but you don't actually live up to that purpose, then people see through that. The younger generation totally sees through that, and social media makes it obvious that the company's not living up to those values, and that's the problem that accounting has, is that a lot of these big firms like, have a really crappy true purpose, which is just to make a lot of money and enrich the partners, right? Like That's the purpose of them, if you actually look at how they operate. It's to, get, it's to, to make money for the audit partners. And, you know, the, pe- the people who rise to the top of those organizations are not great people in a lot of cases. And I'm sure there are many great people who are partners at Big Four, but uh, I'm sure there's a lot that are pretty terrible because why would the employee experience be that bad uh, if they weren't, right? It's funny, they're not on social media. It's like they don't exist. I mean, who, who, think about it. There's, you got Tony Nitty, who, like, he wasn't, he wasn't Big Four like, until he joined EY. Right. He came up to EY because he was such an influencer. Yeah, but like, who who are the you know who are the big four partners representing the big firms on like on social media?
0: Oh, I, I yeah yeah yeah, I, I, yeah. right? Because you think there'd be people naturally for the size of the these firms, you yeah. you would know people that there that are thought leaders or they're they're yeah. the brand because like brands need people. Right? Yeah, evangelist for that brand.
1: Right, I think that's the problem. Is like Deloitte is just this amorphous brand that doesn't like. Who are the people running it? The, you know, who are the people that that could be the episode title? Who who is who who is who are the people? All right, what else do you got? Well, we should play that interview with Jimmy Corley.
0: Oh yeah, it's just a, that ties in. Well.
1: Okay, I'm gonna try and play the um, interview that we did with Jimmy Corley, the executive director of the arkansas state board of accountancy talking about the 150 hour rule so trigger warning if you are triggered by our coverage of the 150 hour rule you might want to turn off this stream right now uh, for the next like 11 minutes welcome to the cloud accounting podcast thank you guys good to be here today we've been talking recently about the 150 hour rule the fifth year of education that is required in virtually all jurisdictions where cpas are licensed What do you think about the 150-hour rule?
2: Well, I think uh, we need to take a hard look at it. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, our state adopted it, I think, in 98. So we've had it for 25 years. And times were different, and they made a decision, and and everybody, you know, bought in. It took a a long time to to get that for all the states, because I think Florida started like in 83 or 84, so it's been a while. You know, things were different. I wish if I could go back in time and change it, I would have made – those hours be specific and maybe a master's degree, maybe an MBA or a Mac, but I don't know the history. Maybe that wasn't politically feasible to, to go to that bar, but for whatever reason, you know, we've got this extra 30 and me personally, I've got a bachelor's degree with 152 hours and my extra hours were, I got a, a minor in philosophy, basically at UCA. I was in the honors college there. So I, my extra hours were filled a lot with, You know Plato and Socrates and John Paul Sartre and you know things that were somewhat interesting for a college kid at the time, but don't have much bearing on my career now. That's (laughs) funny.
1: One of one of my classes (laughs) that I took to satisfy my 150-hour requirement was Intro to Philosophy. I consider that to be very valuable, but I do wonder, you know, what does it have to do with being a CPA, right? What what value What value did it add? Because it could be in anything. It could have been basket weaving. It could have been I think we had one one listener said that they earned their credits in uh, interpretive dance. We see a lot of that
2: when we review transcripts for licensure. You know, you'll have some nontraditional students that got a degree in biology or communications, or just just runs a gamut, and they they'll have a lot of hours that have nothing to do with not only accounting but not even business. And so, I think that was the the big mistake that we made back in the day. Again, I don't know why we didn't require certain hours or certain degrees but
0: has anybody ever published that like hey here's all the licensures we issued last year in 2022 and of these here's how many were accounting degrees how many were non-accounting degrees here's what people did for their extra 30 like any stats that that publicly you could release
2: oh boy we, we could do something like that for for our state um it's not readily available we'd have to do some some digging and some research but That would be very interesting to see, you know, how many students are taking advantage of that rule and and getting something that helps their career versus just filler material. If I had to just guess, you know, based on what I've seen in my 12 years here, I would say maybe 80 percent, 75 to 80 percent of the students do get something that's related to their career. But there's a significant portion that that don't. So, yeah, I don't have any hard and fast stats on that. But.
1: That, that is there. Interesting. 80, 20. So, so when Florida was the first state in 83 to increase the requirement, add another 30 credit hours, college education was a lot less expensive than it is now. I think we can just take that as a given. Do you see the extra cost of the fifth year as a barrier to entry to the accounting profession?
2: I do. And it's, it's not only the cost, it's also the opportunity cost. You're having to spend thousands of dollars on tuition and living expenses, and also you're giving up a year of salary. And so, especially at a time where we're struggling to attract minority students and first generation students, I I think most people, if you're honest, when you look at that, you would agree, hey, this is a pretty big barrier to getting into the profession. I don't see a way around that. Again, if there was some sort of agreement that we're going to require a master's degree or, you know, something that, that you could argue, Hey, we're, we are really improving this person's credentials and, and education. You might justify the barrier, but I think we all have to get to a point where we agree it's a barrier.
0: But I feel like, you know, there's some people out that are on Twitter and they're saying, Oh, this is like a badge of courage, right? This is to weed out the people that can't hack the extra schooling. But I think what's happening, a freshman or sophomore in college who's trying to like, get their deduction order they're like, I don't, I can't afford another year of school, and they're making decisions before they even give accounting a real consideration just because of one fifty.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. And to me, the the, the badge of honor is the CPA exam. It's a very difficult test. It's hard. You have to study. And to me, substantial equivalency should be based on that. You know, if you pass the exam and you've got a bachelor's degree, that's that should be enough. You know, most of the people in our profession that are over forty five. Don't have 150, and a lot of those people are very successful. And have done well, and so I, I don't buy the the argument that we should base status equivalency
1: on on these extra hours that don't require certain coursework. So NASBA, the National Association of State Boards of Accountancy, I imagine you're involved in that deeply as a as the director of a state board. Before we started recording, we were talking about how you're going to be going to. Uh, you're coming to our state for a annual gathering, is that That's right? That's right. Next next of, week in Tucson. So is it all the all oh. the state boards are coming, getting together? I, I might crash this.
2: So what it is, it's it's all the directors and certain uh, key staff from the boards will gather for a 3-day meeting uh, in Tucson. It's a good good place to network and also, you know, hear from NASBA and the ASCPA about, you know, current current topics. I'm sure this will be a hot topic. If if not on the agenda officially, it'll be water-cooler discussion, for sure.
0: This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by ClientHub. We've been talking about the lack of accountants lately, and I'm guessing you may have your own shortage this busy season. And with accounting teams spending more than 30% of their time chasing clients for information, client hub can help you gain one-third of a body just by getting needed information from clients quickly. ClientHub automatically sends your clients a task for each expense or deposit marked as uncategorized in QuickBooks. Your client then can respond via their simple web experience or even their highly rated mobile app. Your team will save hours of time, and the best part—that it's free. Introducing the free ClientHub recategorization plan. ClientHub is bringing the freemium business model to accounting apps. They are so confident that you, your team, and your clients will love the free recategorized plan that it will lead you to implement all the features of the award-winning ClientHub into your firm's workflows and communications. Using ClientHub in your workflow is a guaranteed ROI, especially since it's free. To get ClientHub's new recategorized plan for free, head over to ClientHub. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-L-I-E-N-T-H-U-B.
1: Yeah, well, I, I imagine it it would be because NASBA, the board of NASBA, which is not every uh, director, it's just some. Is
2: that right? So NASBA has about uh, I think twenty or twenty five board members that they mm-hmm. select um, for their for, for their board positions, and they meet I think once a quarter to kind of set policy and and, and kind of govern the organization. Which which NASBA is a great organization. I, I've had really good experience with them in my 12 years. I've served on several committees. I'm currently on their UAA committee, which is of course a document that we try to keep uh, everything everybody on the same, not the same standards, but very similar. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. an important document and committee. A lot of good people there. I just I don't know the reasoning for. And I was shocked when they said that all 20 or 25 directors voted in Indiana to support it.
1: And that's, that's what I was going to bring up. Yeah, is that the the board voted unanimously last week or the week before to uphold the 150 hour requirement. And I, I thought that was interesting they did that because, uh, well, it's because the state of Minnesota, there's a there's a bill in the state legislature there to reduce the requirement from 150 to 120. Well, actually to create an alternative pathway. Mm-hmm to allow for 120 with, uh, I think, an extra year of experience in exchange, right? Swapping experience for the education. Um, so they did this. Uh, they, they they voted. What what do you think about that? Would you have voted that way? What do you think about what Minnesota's pursuing? Well, first, the, the board's vote.
2: I was surprised. I wasn't surprised that they voted to support. I was surprised it was unanimous. And to me, there's some sort of disconnect between NASDAQ and in the, the grassroots, if you will. Um, our board is, is very concerned about it. i talked to other states. Most of them feel, hey, we need to at least be talking about this and to just shut it down and say, no, the, the 150 is, is the gold standard, the golden goose, so to speak, and we should leave it alone. I, I understand that, to, to be honest. The Minnesota bill, to me, is very good because it leaves a pathway for the colleges to keep, you know, offering their MAC programs to students who want to go that route. And so you're not going to eliminate graduate schools for, you know, 90% of the country, which would be a disaster. But you do offer a chance for these students that need to go to work, that are ready to go to work, that can't afford that extra year. They can get two years experience instead of, you know, the one, but they don't have to have the extra 30 hours. And to me, that language and that bill is very good. I'm not crazy about the CPE side. I think there's a third pathway, but, you get 120 hours one year to 120 hours of CPE just because you, you could do that in three weeks, right? You could get your CPE. And, and I, I just don't, I don't think that's rigorous enough, but the first two options mm-hmm. to me are really good. And if I had, if I was a legislator in Minnesota voting on that bill, I'd, I'd have to vote fa- in favor as is, uh, even with my concerns about the CPE.
1: I imagine the reason that bill is in the legislature is because the, State Board is hearing from firms in Minnesota that they're having trouble getting accounting students into their firms and, and there aren't enough CPAs to go around. What are you hearing from firms in Arkansas when it comes to the talent crisis in accounting? It's,
2: it's the same thing. You know, We hear from firms that they can't find enough help. They're struggling. We have firms that they've got people that have passed the exam at 120, but they've got to you know go to school at night to, to get their 150 get licensed. And so, yeah, we're, we're hearing that from, from firms. And I think that's what you saw in Minnesota is the boards and societies are getting pressure. NASBA, and the CPA for whatever reason, aren't really – maybe they don't hear the same comments. I, I don't know. But there's a disconnect there. And so you kind of see this wild sheep or black sheep, I guess, going out on its own. And we'll see if it creates any momentum. I will say our state is, is looking into it. We haven't filed any bills or, or taken any official – action on on this issue but we're very interested in what's going on in minnesota i know south carolina has a similar situation going on with their state society and so we're we're very interested to see you know where this or Mm -hmm. or how this plays out
0: jimmy can you speak to the autonomy that the state societies have and in the states in fact have versus the bigger or national organizations is it kind of an unwritten like you better play by the rules or is it do you truly have the power to just change it on your own
2: well i'll start with state boards that they definitely have you know we have our our state statutes and so we i guess somewhat control that of course we have to get it through the legislature and that that creates challenges but as far as us you know needing the fcp or nasba to approve anything we don't have to have their their blessing Obviously, we'd like to have that. That helps the process when we get through that. From that society perspective, for years, I think that state societies have been kind of lockstep with AICPA, and you very rarely saw much challenge of ideas or um, you know any kind of disagreements, but I, I think we may be seeing a tide turn on that because of this issue right now. That's a, that's a very good question.
1: Firms that are able to retain, recruit, what are they doing that firms that are struggling aren't doing?
2: Well, I'm I'm not boots on the ground that, so to speak, but just from what I hear, you know, it's it's work-life balance, you know, starting salaries are an issue. Uh, I I did some calculations a few weeks ago. I started with Arthur Anderson back in 2001 and I took my base salary and adjusted for inflation. And from what I hear, the starting salaries are out there now. We haven't even kept up with inflation from when I started back 22 years ago. And so that's, that's an issue, you know, work life balance. We, we've got a generation of students that, that don't want to be in the office 70, 80 hours a week and their, their actions speak, speak to that, you know, loudly. And so firms have got to get creative in, in work life balance, salary arrangements. Um, you see a lot about, uh, unlimited PTO, which is to me is problematic because <laughs> we all know the pressures of, you know, of not being there and having projects to do, and, and to me, it's just a, a license not to have people be in the office all the time. I, I think it actually does the opposite. But I think we're going to have to see, we're going to have to see firms get creative in, in what they're doing. To uh, attracting is one thing, but retaining is a whole different animal. You know, how do you get those folks to stay? And money and time is is, is really the uh, the two big issues. And how do you balance that out and, and give folks a reason to I want to be there long term.
1: So that's all the time we have. We talked to Jimmy a bit longer than that, but I think you got the best bits there. Really great to, to talk to somebody who's leading a state board of accountancy and, and, you know, hearing, he hears the issues. He's listening to the members. Omachi says, can't lawyers fulfill their legal studies in a law office or judges chamber in California? Wouldn't something like that work in accounting? I'm not sure, actually. I have no idea. I do think that the comparison of accounting to law or medicine is false, that we shouldn't be doing that to justify the fifth year, because lawyers go to law school, and the law school results in a law degree, and they require that to get to be lawyers. And same thing, medical doctors have to go to medical school. We don't have accounting school. You know, that's not what this fifth year is. It can be anything. And so... Uh, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't add. It doesn't add value the same way. It's not equivalent, right? It's kind of like a path, kind of a pathetic attempt, you know, to do what that was. And I don't know the legal profession, the medical profession. They're having their own issues with recruiting, so I, I don't think we want to be copying them or making it even harder. I wanted to show everybody this poll that Mike Sylvester CPA did on Twitter. He said last week. Should 150 college credits be required or 120 to be a CPA? Personally, I think we should change to 120 hours tomorrow. And so you could choose 150, 120, or just see the results. Only 25% of the 562 respondents chose 150. It's only a quarter of and that's tax a, Twitter. It's a, to
0: get 560 votes, this is a Twitter poll?
1: Yeah, a Twitter poll. That's pretty good. That, that's yeah.
0: very, very good for a Twitter poll.
1: Yeah, it's good, right? Um, And so, yeah, 150... Uh, got twenty five percent, one hundred twenty to go immediately to one hundred twenty. Got sixty percent, and then there were fifteen percent that didn't um, didn't give an answer. Just wanted to see the results. So, you know, if if the state leaders and the ASCP and NASBA are listening to the members, I think majority. Well, who knows, right? But at least a solid majority of those online are in favor of going back to one hundred twenty immediately. So I don't think this would be actually that difficult to do, right? There's a lot of support for this in the community. And the argument is, oh, it would be, take so long to change the law in all the different states. I don't think it would take that long. I think maybe a few years it could be done if we had the willpower to do it from a national level and to get all those hundreds of people working at NASBA and the ACPA like, moving on this, right? Like, what what else are they we paying them to do uh, if it's not to advocate on behalf of the profession and do big things like this? So... Yeah, no, no, this is like do your job, right? Um don't 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 say oh it's too difficult as your excuse. There you go. David, do you want to um share anything else before we go? I Got think a few, uh, minutes.
0: So, so so the CPA Practice Advisor, they do their um annual thought leaders symposium, I if that's the right word they use for it. Um mm-hmm. and they published a whole post about it, right? And In the title of the post is, Accounting Thought Leaders Discuss Future of the Profession, Advisory Services, and Tax. And Vimal noticed, and a bunch of others, if you follow through this thread, that it's just a bunch of white people. (laughs) And they talked about diversity in accounting. And and the other thing is somebody else called out on the article itself on um, CPA Practice Advisors' post is like, what's the point of this article? It's just like a photo album they list yeah. who is there there's a bunch of photos they have bullets of what they talked about but there's actually no meat and potatoes here of what they discussed
1: what did or, they actually talk about yeah. what did they what conclusions did they come to
0: and so i was searching twitter cuz i swear to god this has been brought up previous years they put out the photo and then people start being like where's where's it's just it's just yeah the, the, didn't you play that like thing about the construction industry about it's just the same it's the same people in the room over and over every and over year over,
1: yeah. over and over. It's the lack of diversity of thought that's the real problem. But there yeah.
0: was someone who said, the nice thing is the uh, 40 under 40 is very diverse now. Yeah. So hopefully,
1: you know. But isn't that what this thing is for?
0: Well, this is not the 40, or, this is just the thought leaders which is different than oh. 40 under 40.
1: Okay. You know, but it, They
0: yeah. could have brought in two other white male thought leaders if they'd like from the Cloud <laughs> Accounting <Academy> Podcast. <laughs>
1: Uh, oh boy. Well, I, I don't apply for these things anymore. No, no. I, I, I did it two years, and I stopped going because it's it's a bunch of people in a room, and nobody's really saying anything that's meaningful. It's all like talking just to talk, which I feel like is a lot of, of what the thought leaders in our profession do. They just they, they get up and they give a presentation because that's what they're supposed to do, but they're not actually saying anything meaningful.
0: I I think a lot of these things, even some of these events I've I've, I've attended at at the ASCP itself, these these things are set up to get vendors to spend money.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And take photos. Well, at least they posted the photo album this year. (laughs) Um, David, that's all the time we have for this week. Where can people find you online if they want to track you down and tell you what they think? I'm on all the socials, at David Leary. Yeah. And I am at Blake T. Oliver. Follow us on YouTube, subscribe to the Cloud Accounting Podcast, and get notified when we go live. And you can join us and you can let us know what you think in the chat. It's so great to see all of you and have all of you join us, uh, especially on a Friday afternoon as we record a little later than usual. And Friday next Friday, for some of you.
0: we have normal schedules. Like we'll be live.
1: Yes. At normal, think, our
0: normal Friday time. We don't have, we're not traveling. We don't have any craziness
1: going on, right? That's right. And we have Dr. Josh McGowan. Uh, i believe is from troy university he's going to be joining us uh, to talk about the future of the profession and he's very bullish he's an accounting educator i want to hear everything that's going on uh, in the cutting edge of education in accounting and uh you know he's a young guy let's get his perspective so tune in for that Uh, again subscribe to us on youtube trinity says have a great weekend thank you trinity i will i'm going to go for a hike we're going to have some good weather here in Scottsdale. So I, I, I hope it warms up for everybody else. I know it's been kind of crazy with the, the snowstorms. Be safe out there. Be safe. All right, David. Bye, I'll everybody. See you next week. Bye.
0: Time for the classifieds. ClientHub Hub automatically sends your clients a task for each expense or deposit marked as uncategorized in QuickBooks. Your team will save hours of time, and the best part, that it's free. Introducing the free Client Hub recategorized plan. Client Hub is bringing the freemium business model to accounting apps. They are so confident that you, your team, and your clients will love the free recategorized plan that will lead you to implement all the features of the award-winning Client Hub into your firm's workflows and communications. Using ClientHub in your workflow is a guaranteed ROI, especially since it is free. To schedule your demo, go to ClientHub.app. That's ClientHub.app. Check out Hector Garcia's new app called Write Tool for QuickBooks Online. Instantly increase your productivity with keyboard shortcuts and more. It will save you seconds. The app is free and offers a pro version with additional batching tools. Check them out at WriteTool.app. That's WriteTool.app. R-I-G-H-T-T-O-O-L dot app. Is it possible to scale your firm while significantly reducing your workload so you can spend more time with your family? That's what Marie Phillips did when she tripled the revenues of her multi seven-figure firm thanks to Future Firm Accelerate. Designed for busy firm owners, Future Firm Accelerate gives you the system, training, coaching, and the community you need to systemize your firm so that you can scale it while working less. The program is built around founder and CPA, Ryan Lozanis' six-part Future Firm framework, which he used to scale and sell his own firm, Zen Accounting, to a major international organization in just five short years. To learn more and join over 700 other modern firm owners scaling their businesses, go to www.futurefirmaccelerate.com. That's www.futurefirmaccelerate.com.